Last time I spoke, I spoke on uh, biblical inspiration, and to this morning I'm going to talk also about the, the authority of Scripture. So let me begin by reading the main passage that I want us to uh, focus on, but um, dive, uh, delve off of as well. So it's in 2 Timothy, which is in the New Testament. It's roughly probably 60% of the way through the New Testament. Um, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 3.16, a classic passage on Scripture. So I will read it out loud here. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul is writing to a pastor, Timothy, a young pastor, and telling him that the Bible is the main tool that Christians have for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, this is challenged in a lot of ways. This authority of the Bible to teach, rebuke, correct is challenged in several different ways. Some people deny the inspiration of the Bible. Ah, it wasn't written by God. Others argue that the translations are somehow inadequate, that we don't really know what it says. Others argue that we can't really interpret it properly, even if the translations are correct. Um, so those are various challenges. Today, I'm going to focus on a different challenge. This is the challenge from what's called the canon. And you'll notice if my title's up there, a really lame attempt at a pun. You notice the first canon up there has two ends in the middle, and the second one has one N. That's because canon with two ends is like an artillery piece, the thing that you shoot uh, on the military field or from a ship. And canon with one N means... Uh, a rule, and it comes from a word originally that was a that meant a reed, like a reed from which they made um, paper and used to measure things. So it means a rule or measure. And we talk about the Bible as being the rule of faith for the Christian life. So when Christians talk about the canon with one end, they're referring to the Bible, the rule of faith. And there's a debate: uh, which books should be in the Bible and which shouldn't, books shouldn't be in there. A small debate. Um, but there is some debate about that. So it's the debate about the canon that I'll be focusing on today as one way some people have used to challenge and undermine biblical authority. Uh, there are Christians. Christians do disagree what books should be in the Bible. Catholics have a few more books in the Old Testament than Protestants have. Um, Coptic or Egyptian Christians and Ethiopian Orthodox have the largest canon. In our Bible, we have 66 books. Uh, in uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox canon, they have 85, I think, books. But most of those differences, all the differences, are in the Old Testament. Every Christian denomination agrees on the New Testament books precisely. So that's what we're going to talk about today, but let me open with prayer. Father, we ask that as... We um, understand and study your word, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us to think clearly about these issues and apply them to our lives as well. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. So it all started with Muhammad Ali, this objection. Not the boxer, formerly known as Cassius Clay, but a simple Egyptian peasant. In December of 1945, Muhammad Ali and his brother went, uh, saddled up their camels, and went out to find and dig for natural fertilizer in the hills near their house in a town in Egypt called Nag Hammadi. And 
when they were there, they discovered a clay jar that they didn't expect to find. And they looked at it, and Muhammad Ali and his brother were afraid to open it. At first, he t- as he tells the story later, he thought maybe there was an evil genie or jinn in there. So he was kind of superstitious and afraid to open it. Then he thought, yeah, maybe there's gold in there. And so his greed got the better of his fear, and he cracked it open. And what he found was uh, several books uh, of papyrus, not papyrus scrolls, but papyrus books. And they had um, 13 different books inside that contained 52 separate writings. Um, It's believed that these books were buried around 400 AD by a group of um, heretics or Christian heretics called Gnostic. They were Gnostic monks, and I'll explain in a minute what that means. Um, But Gnosticism basically is an early form of Christian heresy, and if you want to put it in modern terms, it's sort of, think of a combination between New Age thinking and like secret societies like the Freemasons or the Illuminati or something like that. So New Age Freemasons is one way to think about it. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word knowledge, and what they would argue is that like the Freemasons, they have secret knowledge that as you go up in levels, as you get closer and closer to the center of the religion, uh, you actually get more and more secrets of Jesus that he only taught the select few and you become a stronger and stronger Christian. So it's based on the word knowledge and really secret knowledge. So this is an early uh, heresy of Christianity. Um, The Nag Hammadi Library, as it's called, those 13 books, are not as famous as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered just two years later, not in Egypt, but over in, in Israel. But they were important nonetheless, and they took them a long time to be translated and studied. Really wasn't until the 1970s that scholars like the Princeton um, University professor, Elaine Pegels and others, really started to publish books explaining the contents that were, that were found there. Um, so, what Elaine Pegels and some others who focus on what we call early Christianities, early competing forms of Christianity, what they, the arguments that they push and explain have been popularized in a book that came out years ago um, called uh, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. There has been two books and two movies made starring Tom Hanks um, that sort of explain it. So I'm going to use that as a way to explain what's going on here because it's a novel, it's fun, it's kind of interesting. But it really does popularize the same scholarly opinion about these 13 books as people like Elaine Peggles do. So at the heart of the Da Vinci Code is a certain picture of Christian history. According to this picture, early Christianity was composed of several rival groups vying to be considered the legitimate form of Christianity. The competitors included the Gnostics and the Christians that later became known as Orthodox Christians, us. Uh, the novel asserts that there are dozens of competing gospels bi- or biographies of Jesus circulated in the early church. The Gnostics favored one set of gospels, while the Orthodox Christians uh, favored another set. But which group, are the, which group had the right gospels? Which ones had the right biographies and teachings of Jesus? Well, the Da Vinci Code and people like Elaine Pegels give the most cynical answer. The victor writes history. Those who win, write the history. And since Orthodox Christians won, the current church today, broadly writ, uh, they picked the Gospels that they wanted and they tailored their religion from those. Um, They argue that 
these books, the decision was made which books to include or exclude from the Bible at a church council in 325 AD in Egypt called the Council of Nicaea. That's also the council where Christians uh, agreed to the formula for the Trinity. How should we explain the Trinity? That was agreed to there. And they argued that this council, where all these churches got together, um, it was really political. These were all these bishops who got together to make decisions and pastors, but really it was about politics, control, um, deceit. I mean, this is the cynical way of looking at it, and completely false, actually. Many of those people that showed up at that council had been persecuted brutally for their faith um, right before Christianity became the state religion of Rome in 321. People were coming without legs. People were coming with their eyes missing because they had all been uh, tortured um, just immediately before this council. So um, they weren't, it wasn't about politics. It was about uh, true faith and what these bishops really thought. The Da Vinci Code asserts that these gospels, these Gnostic gospels, our alternative gospels, uh, provide a better, more accurate view of the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, they argue that traditional Christians have it wrong. That, uh, as one of the characters in the novel says, um, the Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. Now, it takes a lot of discipline on my part to not go into, I'm itching to talk about what he just said about translations, additions, and revisions. Uh, it's killing me that I can't, but I'll stay focused and disciplined here. Uh, scholars like Elaine Peggles make the same point. There were early forms of Christianity, and the church today is not the most authentic form. We should have stuck with the gospel of the Gnostics. That was more authentic. So, Let's look at it. What do the Gnostic Gospels contain? What do they say about the life and teachings of Jesus? Well, some of them don't say anything at all about the life of Jesus. They're called sayings Gospels, where all they do is contain a, a list of sayings uh, of Jesus. A good example of this is one of the Gnostic Gospels called the Gospel of Thomas. Um, as N.T. Wright puts it, uh, it's as though someone were to go through Shakespeare's plays and just take out all the great one-liners without any attempt to show where they belong in the dramas. So the Gospel of Thomas is a sayings gospel, and a lot of um, people who, who hold this view put a lot of emphasis on the Gospel of Thomas. The Gnostic writings do contain biographical information, but they're pretty fanciful. For example, one of the Gnostic Gospels says Jesus was like any other boy. He liked to make mud pies. However, the difference was Jesus would take his mud pies and throw them in the air, and they would become birds and just fly away. So it's sort of fanciful tales like this. Um, another interesting feature is a lot of the bad guys in the biblical narrative that we all were raised reading the Bible, thinking, oh, those are the, the, the bad guys, are actually the good guys in the Gnostic Gospels. So, for example, the serpent in the Garden of Eden is a hero in some of the Gnostic Gospels. Um, Cain, who murdered Abel, is a hero. Korah, who led a rebellion in Israel, is a hero. The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah are a hero. Um, and so in many, many ways, it's really bizarre. They take the bad guys and rewrite them as good guys. But the early church rejected these, uh, these gospel accounts, and rightly so, for lots of good reasons. First, 
These Gospels were written much later than the New Testament Gospels. Um, according to even the most liberal scholar, the Gospel of Mark was written no later than 70 AD. 70 AD. So it's roughly 40 years after Jesus died. Um, the Gnostic Gospels were written at least a century after the death of Jesus and sometimes several centuries. So they're much later. Now, why, why does that matter? Well, generally speaking, the closer a biography is to a historical event or figure, the more likely it is to be accurate, generally speaking. Um, we can tell, though, just by analyzing them that they're written earlier. First example, for example, the Gnostic Gospels have a lot of Gentile and Greek thinking in it. Very Greek, very Gentile. But we know the early church was mainly Jews in Jerusalem. The very first church were Jews in Jerusalem. So when we read the Gnostic Gospels, it's just littered with Greek thought. And to think about it this way, it would be like someone saying, you can tell when a document was written by looking at the ideas in it. Think of Karl Marx. He was born in 1818. So anyone who makes references to Marxism or the ideas of Marxism, we know it has to have at least have been written after 1818 because there was no Marxism until that point. And the same here. A lot of these Greek ideas weren't in the church um, at the early church, because it was very Jewish. Um, secondly, if we look close um, at them, we notice that a lot of the traditional gospels are quoted in sermons and treatises. So we go back and we look at the very first Christian sermons that we have, not in the Bible, outside the Bible, that have been preserved. When we read sermons that the early church had, they're always quoting the, the gospels. None of them quote the Gnostic gospels for at least another century or later. So that gives us another idea. Why are they written earlier? The ideas are more Jewish. And secondly, all the early sermons we have outside the Bible quote the traditional Gospels uh, first and don't quote the Gnostic Gospels at all for another 100 years. It would be like, for example, if Ronald Reagan was giving a speech of Abraham Lincoln and future historians looked back and wanted to know when did Lincoln exist relative to Reagan? Well, Lincoln had to exist first if Reagan is quoting Lincoln. Likewise, if early Christians are quoting the traditional Gospels and not the Gnostic Gospels, and only later the Gnostic Gospels, that's earlier. Third, um, you can see different theological trends and emphasis um, that are earlier, or, sorry, that are later. And then fourth, and this is interesting, the Gnostic Gospels often focus on the lost years of Jesus. So the New Testament tells us a little bit about Jesus from when he was two, birth, two-year-old, a little bit when he was 12, he went to the temple when he was 12, and then really nothing till he's 30. So oddly, almost all the Gnostic Gospels, the events they tell are from when he was two to 12 and 12 to 30. Now, to do that, you would have to know that the original Gospels had to exist first so you know which gaps you can fill in without overtly contradicting them. That's the only way they could make it fit that nicely. So that's another piece of evidence to think that it was written earlier. Um, again, why does it matter? Because generally speaking, the earlier something is, the more accurate it is, especially when it comes to testimony and events. Um, Gnostic theology... Again, it's very New Agey. I, I won't go into details for time's sake, but think, again, New Age Christianity. Uh, a big emphasis on um, female, female um, almost goddess worship. 
a lot of emphasis on female goddess worship. It's, it's a little bit odd, um, but it, it matters which gospels we get. If you go with the Gnostic gospels, you're going to get a different form of Christianity. If you go with the traditional gospels, you're going to get roughly the form of Christianity we have today. So that's why they rejected them. First, it's earlier. Second, they're written under false pretenses. So almost all of these are what are called pseudopigrapha. Pseudo meaning false, and uh, graphe is the Greek word writing, so false writings. That's when you write a biography or a work, and you put the name of someone important on it to get their credibility. So if I wrote a book, and um, I said, uh, instead of putting my name as the author, I put Albert Einstein on it. I'm sort of piggybacking on his credibility. That would be a false writing, false authorship. And almost all of these are uh, false, uh, are pseudepigrapha. All of them are, actually. Um, so we have the Gospel of Peter. Peter didn't write a gospel, but they thought, wait a minute, if I can get people to think that Peter wrote this, Peter has a lot of credibility in the church. Or the Gospel of Thomas, even the Gospel of Mary. There's one uh, called the Gospel of Truth. Um, that. That's pretty bold, right? The gospel of truth. Um, so they're trying to pick prestigious people to write their, to engage in their writings after. So the picture, the, the Da Vinci Code and Elaine Pegel's paint of the Bible gives equal credibility to all these gospels. Said, look, look, they're all great. We just got to pick the subset of them. Actually, the ones written under false pretenses are not as credible as the ones who aren't. Um, and that's important. Secondly, or thirdly, the composition of the Bible rests on the authority of Christ. And this is important. This might be the most important thing that I say today. How do we know which book should be in the Bible? Well, as Christians, we follow Christ. That's our religion. We are disciples of Jesus. We follow him. And the, the most direct and obvious answer is, we followed the books of the Bible that Jesus followed. So, for example, um, Catholics have a few extra books in the Old Testament than we have, but we know what books of the Old Testament Jews in Israel at, in the first century when Jesus lived, we know what books were in the Bible uh, in Jesus' day, the one that he used at the temple to read or in the synagogue to read. And it's the same Bible that we have today, the same 39 books. If you say you want to follow Christ and you want to know which books are in the Old Testament, the ones that Jesus said were in it. And Jesus told us that the Bible is the word of God. He said, uh, for example, that in uh, John uh, 10, the scripture cannot be broken, talking about the Old Testament. He said in Matthew 3, that the Old Testament's the command of God. So if you say, I follow his teachings... And he says, this is the command of God. Or a few uh, sentences later, he says, it's the word of God. Or later uh, uh, in Matthew 5, sorry, he says, not one jot or tittle of the Old Testament will pass away without being fulfilled. So if you're a follower of Christ, you affirm the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today. Um, so Jesus' teaching confirms the Old Testament, but it also creates the New Testament. The New Testament didn't exist when Jesus died. It was written afterwards. So how do we know which books should be in the New Testament? Well, also based on Christ. So based on Christ, looking backwards, and by the way, I have friends that are Jewish, and I used to, we used to have fun, friendly debates about Judaism and Christianity. And oftentimes Jews will say to Christians, look, you can't prove the New Testament from the Old Testament. 
if the Old Testament, let's take this as the word of God, and then you try to prove the New Testament for it, it's difficult. I don't agree with that. I think uh, you can do that. And in fact, the apostles do that. But I often tell them, look, I don't first start believing in the Old Testament, then reason my way to Jesus. I start being a follower of Christ. And then the only reason I believe the Old Testament is because Jesus did. I don't start first with Genesis and think, can I, how can I get to Jesus? I start with Jesus and go backwards and say, well, this Old Testament must be God's word and have credibility because the guy I'm following says so. Um, but the Old Testament, sorry, Jesus' teaching not only confirms the Old Testament, but creates the New Testament. Let me give you guys a couple quotes here that I think are important. Jesus says this of his uh, 12 apostles. He says in Luke 16, he who hears you hears me and he who rejects you rejects me. So what he's telling the apostles is people that hear your teachings, it's the same as if they're hearing my teachings and people who reject you and your message, it's the same as they, if they rejected me and my message. He's giving, our Lord is giving the authority to teach authoritatively in his name to his 12 disciples or apostles. So if you believe Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, then you'll accept the teachings of the apostles because he said so. And this is confirmed all throughout the New Testament. Look at Matthew um, chapter 16. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter. I'm going to quote it here. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Jesus says later in John chapter 20, as the father sent me, I am sending you. So he's giving his apostles incredible authority to teach in his name. Uh, historically, being written by either the apostles or one of their secretaries, some of them weren't the, the most educated, they were fishermen and such, so they had um, people who would uh, write, write for them. But in either way, being apostolic, being originating with the apostles was an important element of which gospels we included in the New Testament for the reasons we just said here. But let's take it a step further. Notice this in Ephesians chapter 20. The Bible says this, that the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You can't ignore the, the apostles and follow Jesus. Jesus said to, to, to listen to their teachings and to accept them as if you would him. That's what apostle means. The word apostle means ambassador or commissioned ones. It's the word for ambassador. And ambassadors are a little different today because we have instant communications. But um, back a few hundred years ago even, the ambassador to a certain country, say from Britain, would speak for the king. They, it would take months and months and months to get letters back. They'd have a little military force. And, and same with the United States as well uh, around that time. Whatever the ambassador said, he could, he could command the military that was in, say, India for the British. And what his policy said, he spoke for the king. Now, when letters got back to the king, he could change the policy or whatever, but full authority. And that's how uh, uh, ambassadors worked in ancient times. And that's what the model is with our, our apostles. So they're the foundation of the church. Uh, also, look at the book of Revelation. The very end says this describing the new Jerusalem, the new heavenly city. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, 
And on them were written the name of the 12 apostles of the land, of the Lamb, excuse me. So again, Jesus himself says, listen to them. They speak for me. Um, interestingly, again, I'm spending a little time on this because people don't pay enough attention to this point. Um, 2 Peter 3.16, Peter says this about Paul. He says uh, that Paul uh, writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters, Paul's, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. So he doesn't say they distort Paul's letters like they do the Bible. He says they distort Paul's letters like they do other books of the Bible, implying that at least some of the writings of Paul have some serious divine authority. So this is, again, Peter himself. Um, We don't have time to go through this, but Acts chapter 15. The very early church were debating, do the Gentiles who are now becoming Christians in droves, do they have to become Jews first? Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to follow Old Testament law? And there's a lot of confusion. So all the apostles got together, this is Acts chapter 15, very early, and had the first church council where they hashed it out and decided. Then they wrote a letter and sent it to all the churches. This is their policy, that they don't have to follow the law except for a few small exceptions. And the church accepted that. Notice the function early on. What these apostles decide, that ends it. This is the teachings of Jesus. They speak in his name, and they sent it to the churches, and the churches obeyed it as if it were authoritative teaching, because it was. Um, Some other examples, Paul says this, that this teaching from Jesus and the apostles was sort of passed down by mentors to mentees, older pastors to younger pastors, and they would teach it to the congregations of the Christians. And so Paul says this about this teaching in 1 Timothy 6.20. Timothy Guard what has been entrusted to your care. So something's been entrusted to him. Now it's about, if you'll notice here, it's about teaching. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed in doing so, departing from the faith. So he's been entrusted with the body of teachings. Second Timothy 2.2 makes it even more explicit. He says, and the things you heard me say in the presence of many. So Paul says, all the teachings you've heard me say in the presence of many people. Entrust that, entrust it, pass it on to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Um, Also in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says this, He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. The teachings I've given you, the church, in either my physical being presence and teaching to you with my word of mouth or by the letters I've sent you, guard them and then pass them on and entrust them to faithful men, people that will regurgitate that teaching faithfully, carefully. Pass them on. So there's this doctrine or body of teachings that the, from Jesus, from the apostles that are being passed on by word of mouth and letter and that, that becomes one of the standards of our faith. And then um, Galatians 1, Paul famously says, hey, if anyone teaches you a gospel other than what I've taught you, other than this body of faith that's been passed down, this teaching that's been passed down from Jesus and the apostles, even if an angel from heaven gives you a different gospel, don't listen to them. And lo and behold, the Gnostics come. Uh, The Gnostics were starting to exist at at Paul's time, but they didn't 
fully exist until uh, roughly this, the end of the 100s, one, second century, end of the 100s, beginning of the 200s AD. Um, but we had it in proto form. When it comes, what do you think they did? When they, when they see all this in the New Testament, they've heard it been taught, here's the body of teaching. If there's any major contradiction with this, don't listen to them. Mark them as heretics, Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. So the Gnostics come with a different gospel, and rightly, the early church fathers said, yeah, we're not going to take that credibly, and for the other reasons I've said as well. But notice that a lot of this assumes that what I've been saying is that the, the Gospels and New Testament are historically reliable. I've been saying that Jesus taught this about his apostles. Jesus gave them authority. Paul said, Timothy, this body of teaching that we passed down, like in Acts chapter 15, that, the first church council, pass that down to faithful men. Keep this transmission of Christian teaching faithful and guarded and protected. And so, did Jesus say that? Are the New Testaments historically reliable, New Testament Gospels? We could spend a lot of time on this. Um, for time's sake, I'll just highlight a few, a few points about this. But um, first, uh, it's important to understand that the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses or people who directly interviewed the eyewitnesses. Uh, a very good example of this is in Acts, sorry, uh, Luke and Acts. The very beginning of Luke the first four verses in the very beginning of Acts um, explain how Luke wrote his gospel. Uh, I want to look at um, I want to look at this for a moment. Luke was not one of the twelve apostles, but he was closely related to them. He was a doctor, very educated, a scholar. So he wrote down the gospel of Jesus' life by interviewing them and others. So here's what he says in Luke one one through four. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to the, notice the handed down language, just as they were handed down to us by those whom from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's a guy's name, a rich Christian who um, paid Luke and sponsored his sponsored his writing so he could do his research, so that you may know with certainty of the things you've been taught. So Luke said, I went and interviewed the eyewitnesses. I wrote it down um, so that there'd be certainty. Now, interestingly, the book of Acts, the very beginning, Luke says this, and Luke wrote Acts as well. He says, um, in my former book, that's the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, Theophilus, I wrote all about Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken to heaven after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And now in this second book, he's given the history of the early church. So Luke wrote a two-volume history of the early church. Volume one, the life and teachings of Jesus, Gospel of Luke. Volume two, the book of Acts. He wrote them both. This is without question. He did it based on interviews, and he did it um, firsthand interviews. He wrote down and organized the story. So we have, we have here uh, in this example, Luke saying, this is real history based upon the eyewitnesses I'm recording down what they said happened. Um, we have confirmation. Again, I won't go into details because of time's sake. Confirmation from um, archaeologists, some of them skeptical, like uh, Sir William Ramsey, a British archaeologist who set out to double check as much as he could stuff in the Bible. 
he was a critic. He didn't think the Bible was historically accurate. He thought it was just fables. So he would look when the New Testament says there was a city here or a temple there or this teaching was here. He would go to that area, look up, for example, in Ephesus and find idols of Diana, the, um, the god Diana, uh, Greek god Diana. And so um, he would find that the temple was located where it's implied it's located in, in the book of Acts, etc. Anything that he could check out, a lot of it was destroyed. He couldn't check it all out. But the extent he could, all of it was confirmed. And he says, um, I'm going to quote him here, I may fairly claim to have entered in on this investigation without prejudice in favor of the conclusion which I shall now seek to justify. I began with a mind unfavorable to, but more recently I find myself brought into contact with the book of Acts as an authority for the topography, antiquities, society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne upon me in various details that the narrative showed marvelous truth, beginning with the fixed idea that the work was essentially a second century, a later composition, and never relying on evidence as trustworthy for the first century conditions. I gradually came to find as a useful ally in some obscure and difficult investigations. Luke, as a historian, is first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, the author should be placed along the very greatest of historians. Um, a few objections that should be considered, however, that people bring up. People say, well, wait a minute. The book was written, uh, written these gospels are written by followers of Jesus. They're biased. Well, by itself, having history written by someone who has an agenda doesn't necessarily mean it's unreliable. Think, for example, of the Holocaust. The vast majority of eyewitnesses to the Holocaust were Jews. Much of what we know about what happened to the camps were Jewish survivors. But we wouldn't say, well, I'm not going to, you really can't trust what they're saying about what happened in concentration camps because they have a bias. They hate the Nazis. They hate the Germans. They're going to shade it a certain way. No, no one would say that. You do have to be careful and skeptical, but it doesn't mean that it's unreliable. Another objection is that, well, there's miracles in there. Silly miracles that Jesus performed. And we know miracles don't happen. Again, that's a time for another sermon. Um, but in most cases, they assume there's no miracles. And then based on that assumption, they say, well, these can't be real because look at the miracles. But another important point on that, even secular histories that we take as central to Western history have miracles in them. This is a very good example of Julius Caesar in 49 BC. He famously crossed the Rubicon River. And we even you hear that phrase sometimes, crossing the Rubicon. What it meant is he took his armies into Rome. And um, it was doing that caused the Roman Civil War and led to the empire of Rome rather than the Republic. And what's the evidence we have for that? A Roman historian called Suetonius. Suetonius says when Caesar got to the Rubicon on the other side of the river, there was this gigantic, um, a giant, and it was an apparition, sort of a ghostly-like giant, playing a, a flute, and it indicated that he should cross the river. Now, everyone knows Caesar crossed the Rubicon. Nobody doubts it. But the history of it includes this weird, sort of miraculous, uh, angelic, supernatural element, and nobody says, well, we can't believe it now. It's based upon Suetonius, so we, can't, we can't go any further with it. We, can, we understand that in principle, there could be embellishes add, uh, added to it, maybe to, um, but, but they don't necessarily affect the history, right? So we understand that in principle. Okay, uh, I would like to close uh, with a little bit of homework. Um, 
There are, I want you to think about this. This morning I've talked a little bit about one way that people undermine biblical authority. Meaning, one way they say, I don't have to listen to the Bible. Because these aren't even the real books or teachings of Jesus. These, are, these, are, um, these were decided for political reasons in the Roman Empire. We don't have to listen to it. Uh, that's one way of avoiding I've talked briefly. I didn't actually get through a lot of my material, but um, maybe for another time. And enough, but there's other more practical ways that people deny biblical authority. Stuff that you and I do. Most of us don't say, well, the Gnostic Gospels seem more credible history than the traditional Gospels. But there are several ways. One basic way is we don't even read our Bible. If we really thought that the Bible contains the very words of God, we would read it. We would say, well, this has a lot of authority. I should read this and I should follow it. So the very fact that many of us can be too lazy about our quiet times and reading scripture is a practical way that we undermine biblical authority. Secondly, we're tempted to undermine biblical authority by interpreting the Bible in such a way as to get the results we want. We don't like something the Bible teaches that makes us feel uncomfortable. It doesn't fit with modern culture. There's lots of things that fit this. And the honest way to handle teachings of the Bible that we're uncomfortable with is to just admit, I'm uncomfortable with that, but submit anyway. I don't get it. Uh, that the values seem odd. It's very foreign to me. God's okay with us being honest that way. And then we finally submit and say, well, this has the authority of the teachings of Jesus. And like it or not, I'm going to be faithful to that as a Christ follower. So this very big temptation, not just now in our times, but in, uh, for example, uh, the South of the United States, when people would use the Bible to defend slavery. There are some statements in the Bible that seem to defend slavery. And you can imagine being really uncomfortable with them. And how did they handle them? Handle them honestly, but also don't use it to justify, as Southerners did, their pre-existing preferred views about slavery. And there are views like that with us today. And we've got to be honest and be strong. And when something is a difficult or painful teaching socially, it brings discomfort, maybe even shame or embarrassment. We shouldn't be ashamed of the teachings of our Lord. We should be faithful to them. So all of us in different teachings are often tempted to interpret the Bible in a way that we feel more comfortable with. And that's undermining the authority of Scripture as well. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask, Lord, that you would help us in our day-to-day living of our Christian life, to be faithful in our quiet times, to study your word as if it is the word of God, rather than just saying it's the word, but ignoring it. And secondly, Lord, help us to have the integrity and the strength, despite social pressure or psychological pressure, to be faithful to your teachings and take the consequences, whatever come. We ask these things in your name. Amen.